It says in verse number 8 of Philippians 2, And being found in fashion as a man, he, that's Christ, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We are taught here about the marvellous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, spoken of in another place by Paul, where he said that he was rich in glory, yet for our sakes he became poor in time, that we through his poverty might be rich for all eternity that is yet to come. When he humbled himself to be found in fashion as a man, he laid aside that glory which he had with the Father before the world began. This is really speaking about the incarnation of Christ, and that is something that we celebrate at this particular time of the year, not because we have to, not because this is the actual day when we believe Christ was born into the world, but as I've often pointed out, the thoughts of many are in this direction at this time of year. I see no reason not to take advantage of those thoughts and to again focus not upon fairy tales or superstitious nonsense, but to focus upon the truth concerning the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, His humiliation. In our shorter catechism, it says that Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born and that in a low condition. And that really fits in with what the Scripture says here in Philippians 2 verse 7, because when we read that He made Himself of no reputation, it could be translated, He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself. Now, let me hasten to add that that doesn't mean that He divested Himself of His existence in the form of God. He couldn't do that, and He didn't do that. He did not, as one person was fond of saying, step out of the Godhead to come into this scene of time. He did nothing of the sort. He never did step out of the Godhead. He did not ever function, if I could put it that way, without His Godhood, even when in His state of humiliation. Because even in the midst of death, He had to be the mighty God, as Isaiah puts it, in order that by His death, He might conquer death. So the incarnation is so vitally important. It's so important to remember what happened when Christ came into the world. The story is told of a church meeting one Christmas morning and there was a little boy in church watching on eagerly as the children of the Sunday school received presents from the minister. They came up, filed up to the front one by one and got a nicely wrapped Christmas present. They all back to their seats with their little smiles from ear to ear. And this little boy turned to his mother and he said, Mom, I thought this was supposed to be the birthday of Jesus. When does he get his present? When does he get his present? And that child in his own simple way really got it, didn't he? What do we give to the Lord who gave so much for us? 
There was a preacher back in the United Kingdom by the name of Christmas Evans. And you can only guess why he was given that first name. But he's a mighty preacher of the word. And Christmas Evans, referring to the Incarnation, he called it the most important event in history. Because, he said, by this means, it was possible for God to be the Savior of his lost and ruined creatures. And in this portion of Scripture, we really see three things in relation to this. What I have called, as the subject for the sermon, infinite condescension. Infinite condescension. A step down that is beyond compare anywhere in human history. Notice concerning this infinite condescension, the place, the place. Verse 7 of Philippians 2, He made himself of no reputation, or as I've said, he emptied himself. He did not empty himself of his deity. His Godhood was not laid aside. He did never cease to be God when he became man. He did not become half God and half man. Some people have this idea of a hybrid. He's sort of 50% God and 50% man. That is false. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. That's why he's called the God-man. The mediator. He did not empty himself of his deity. Furthermore, when he came to this place, this place of humiliation, to this sin-cursed earth, he did not empty himself of his attributes of deity. Not only did he not cease to be God, he did not lay aside any of the attributes of deity. For example, and this is something that many folks don't understand, but need to appreciate. Jesus, when he came into this world, he did not cease to be omnipresent. That is to say, everywhere present in his fullness at the same time. Now, how could that be? It's because the essence of God, which is the Son of God, shares the very same attributes as the Father and the Spirit. The Father is omnipresent. The Spirit is omnipresent. And Christ himself, though he was in the incarnation choosing to be located in a body, Colossians 2 verse 9, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in a body, bodily. Yet at the same time we read in two different verses, John 1 verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time, The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That didn't cease to be the case even when he came to this earth in the form of a man. And that's what gives significance to the words that he said to Nicodemus. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 13. This is the kind of verse that causes people to scratch their heads and they think, well, what's that talking about? Let me read it to you. John 3.13 And no man hath ascended up to heaven. Okay. We think about heaven as a place. No man hath ascended up to heaven. But he that came down from heaven. Okay. There's Christ himself. He came down from heaven. 
And he's right there standing in front of Nicodemus. And then he says this, Even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And Nicodemus might well have thought, well, what, do you, what do you mean, Lord? Even the Son of Man which, which is in heaven, you're here. But the Lord is here, stating clearly for us the doctrine of his omnipresence. The essence of Christ, which is God, is everywhere present at the same point in time. That was still true while he was on this earth, in a body. And we can also say that not only was he omnipresent, but omniscient. That is to say, he was all-knowing. That's why you read things like in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 4, about the Lord knowing their thoughts. There were times when people thought certain things, they didn't articulate it, they didn't speak it out loud, and yet the Lord knew what they said, and he challenged it, and they must have thought, how did he know that? How did he know what I was thinking? Well, the Lord does know what you're thinking. Even right now, he knows what you're thinking. There's not a thought in our minds. But as the psalm tells us in Psalm 139, Lord, thou knowest it altogether. He is omniscient. And he is omnipotent. There is nothing that he could not do. And once in a while the Lord showed that kind of omnipotence when he performed miracles. When he reversed the course of nature and did things that are not normally done in the course of life. People who are born blind never will be able to see. He was able to make them see. People who never had walked, who never could walk, they could have every surgery known to man and never would be able to walk. But he made them walk. Because he's omnipotent. There's nothing impossible with Christ. But yet it says that he came to this place of humiliation. Look at it again. Philippians 2 verse 7. He was made in the likeness of men. That's what it says in that last phrase. Made in the likeness of men and also was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that. That means he was made a little lower than the angels, or a little while inferior to the angels. That is to say, when he came to this earth, he submitted himself to that, to be made lower than the angels. Because to become a man was an act of infinite condescension. Also, we could say, not only did he not only empty, he did not empty himself of his deity, he didn't empty himself of the attributes of deity, but he was made in the likeness of men, he was made lower than the angels, and he also did lay aside all the outward manifestation of his glory. He did not lay aside his deity, but he did lay aside the outward manifestations of it. Think about him on the Mount of Transfiguration. There you have a glimpse of what Christ would have looked like if he had come in his full orbed glory. What does it say? Matthew 17 verse 2. His face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. He was transfigured. He, he was in such a bright emanation that you couldn't have looked upon him. 
It would not have served his purpose to have walked all the time he was on the earth among men in such regalia of glory. But instead, he was found in fashion or habit as a man. As Philippians 2 and verse 8 tells us, being found in fashion as a man. Laid aside his glory. This is the place to which Christ came. By the miracle of incarnation, it was possible for a sinless one to be made sin. It was possible for one who had no sin to bear sin and to offer up an atoning sacrifice for it, even though he himself needed no sacrifice. You have to be very careful when you read the scripture and read what it does say rather than what it appears to say. And that's true when you come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Some people have read this completely wrong. Here's what it says. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Some have been so foolish as to say that God sent his son in sinful flesh. He did not. Look at it again. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's a very important distinction that needs to be made. There are some false theologians who produce an idea of a Christ whose human nature was just a kind of a shrunken form of deity. But the proper view is that he continued to be the Son of God, but he gave up his environment of glory, if I could put it that way. He laid aside his majesty and his glory, but he still remained God. The place to which he came, came to this earth as a baby, gave up, if you like, his heavenly riches. That was even made clear in what is my second point. Not only does the scripture speak of the place, it speaks of the poverty. And that is really implied here in Philippians chapter 2 by the words in verse 7, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant or a slave and was made in the likeness of men. Think about this. A slave has nothing of his own. He doesn't own anything. He has no property. He has no rights. In that particular day in which Paul lived, a Roman slave was like a persona non grata. He couldn't own property. He couldn't buy a house. He couldn't have anything. He was in total abject poverty. He was dependent upon his master for everything, for every bite that would go down his throat. So when it says that the Lord Jesus came to this earth and was made of no reputation and took upon him the form of a bond slave, it means that. He became poor to ransom my soul, as the hymn puts it. Out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Saviour go. He was so poor that he was deprived of all 
you read the Gospels, you find that the Lord had no home. He stayed with people like Mary and Martha, was hosted in their home. He said, the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Oh, the birds of the air, they have their nests. The foxes have their holes. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He didn't own any property. He had no home to go to. He was poor. When he was stripped naked at the cross and he took his garments off him. If you examine the garments of Christ, you'll find that there was one garment that was woven throughout a one-piece garment nearest to his skin. That was worn by Galilean peasants. He was poor. When he wanted to make an illustration of giving to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's, he said to someone, show me a penny. He didn't reach into his own pocket and take out a coin. He didn't have any money. Show me a penny. Whose is the superscription on it? Oh, he was in need. He suffered hunger and thirst. And then he, as a poor man, when stripped of all, he laid down his life and death upon the cross. He died alone and forsaken with nothing. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. There's the birth of Christ. There's the incarnation that ye through his poverty might be rich. Friend of the friendless, betrayed and denied. Help of the weak in Gethsemane cried. Light of the world in gross darkness he died. Jesus, wonderful Lord. That same hymn says, He was born in a manger in poverty sore. People talk today about poverty. They don't have this, they don't have that, and they don't have the other thing. And I have a look at them. They look well fed. Their shoes cost far more than any shoes I could afford. They have cell phones. They got satellite TV. They get free stuff from the government. But they're poor. They're poor. The Lord Jesus was poor with real poverty. And he said himself in Mark 10.45 The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus gave up everything including his life. You know the Lord was so poor literally that he constantly had to borrow things Just study that in your Bible. He didn't even have a place to be born. It was a borrowed stable. It was a borrowed manger in a borrowed stable. Didn't have a place to sleep. So he had to borrow a place to sleep when he went through life. Remember when he was coming into Jerusalem, he didn't have any animal of his own to ride upon. So he had to get the disciples to go to a place to find the mother of that colt. And he rode into Jerusalem on that animal. It was a borrowed animal. There was no place that he could invite the disciples to to have the the Last Supper. So they got a room to have supper in from somebody else. And when he died, 
unlike many people who have a plot, a burial plot already bought and ready for when they leave this earth. The Lord didn't have any burial plot. He had no place to be buried. And so they buried him in a borrowed tomb. Everything that the Lord did showed his poverty. And as John Calvin put it, he emptied himself as the Son of God, but only with reference to his human nature. He emptied himself by taking something into union with himself. He became as us, yet without any sin. And yet it was an amazing step of condescension. Because when you think about it, the body that he took was a post-fall body. What do I mean by that? But you would think it would be an infinite step of condescension for the Lord to come into this life but to have a body like Adam had before he fell into sin, right? A body that wasn't capable of suffering pain or agony, a body that didn't thirst or hunger, a body that was incapable of dying. But that's not the body that the Lord took into union with himself. He took into union with himself a body that was capable of suffering the effects of sin, even though he was not a sinner. That's important for us to remember. The Lord took into union with himself a body, a real body, a body affected by the results of sin, but without any guilt or pollution of sin attaching itself to it. So the Lord was sinless all the time that he dwelt in a body that was capable of hunger and thirst and weariness and pain and suffering and death and as William Hendrickson the commentator put it the sovereign master of all became servant of all and yet he remains the master he didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a servant but he took the form of a servant while still retaining the form of God and if you want an illustration of that You could look at John chapter 13 and you would see there the story of the Lord Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You know that portion, John 13. And what did he do? Well, he laid aside his ordinary robes and he became like a servant. Because in those days, if you were coming in from walking around on the streets... As soon as you come into a person's home, if they had servants, the servant would bring a basin of water. He would take that basin of water and he would wash your feet. Take all the dust off your sandals and off your feet. He would then come into the home and he would dry your feet with the towel that he was girded with. And the Lord Jesus did that for his disciples as an act of humility, as an example to them not to set up a new ordinance. Some churches have gone to the point of thinking, well, that's something we should do. We'll have a foot-washing ordinance in the church. The Lord Jesus never intended to have that. Never. When he said, you ought also to wash one another's feet, he was speaking in in the context of those disciples having humility enough to take the place of a servant for each other. That's what he means. But if you think about it, what the Lord was doing there was giving them a picture parable He was giving them an actual human illustration of what he had done in coming to this earth. This is what he did. 
Just as he was now taking off his ordinary garments and putting a towel around himself to be like a servant, like a slave, washing their feet. When he came from heaven, he laid aside the robes of his glory to come into this scene of time to be, as Philippians 2 says, one in the form of a servant. He's the Lord from heaven. But he came into this sin-cursed scene of time. And in this acted out lesson for the disciples, this parable in action, the Lord was illustrating what took place when he came into the world at the Incarnation. But also he was illustrating what would happen when he was raised and ascended to heaven. Because he put his ordinary garments back on again. Having laid aside his garments, he then girded himself. And that's what happened when the Lord laid aside the garments of glory, Philippians 2 tells us, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But look at this. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He's not the servant, as it were, any longer on this earth. He's exalted now. He's taken his robes of glory back on again. And he's seated at God's right hand, glorified once more. But again, the Lord's humble conduct here is our example as God's people. We are to serve one another. But I've talked about the place, I've talked about the poverty, and also about the position. What was that position that he took up when he came to this earth? Well, he took upon him the form the form of a servant. There are several things that that suggests to us. One is surrender. He became dependent upon his father. And there are a number of scriptures that make this very clear. The words that he spoke were not his, but those given to him by the father. He made that clear in John's gospel. The works that he did were not his, but the father's works. And never throughout eternity had he ever been dependent upon the Father in that sense. But now, here in his state of humiliation, he lived by reliance upon the Father. And he did that willingly as part of the humiliation. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 57. It puts it so well. John 6, 57 As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. I live by the Father. He also said in John 5 and verse number 19, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he saith the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, These also doeth the Son likewise. This is what I'm talking about. This dependence upon the Father. This was a position of surrender to which he came at the Incarnation. But also it was a position of service. We've made that abundantly clear already. But it's interesting that he never availed himself of the inherent powers of his deity except at the Father's command. For instance, he wouldn't command stones to become bread without the word of God by which he lived. He wouldn't even die without a commandment from the Father. 
Did you ever notice that where he said that in John chapter 10? This commandment have I received of my Father. He must have the authority even to lay down his life and take it again. Because this was his position as the mediator. Surrender and service. But also, sorrow. He became subject to the Father's will. And that obedience of Christ was so perfect, he went to the cruel and shameful death of the cross. Oh, how much he was willing to bear. And that brings us to this thought of his suffering. It has often been remarked, the babe in the manger became the man on the tree People talk about the cradle and nativity scenes and all of that. But that that cradle and that manger was in order to the cross. And it was already in view what his purpose for coming was. When his mother wrapped his body as a baby in swaddling bands. Those were the pieces of material that were used to wrap bodies when they died. There was a pointer to his death. When the wise men came, they brought gifts that were very appropriate for him as prophet, priest and king. They brought gold because he's the king. They brought frankincense because he's the great priest of his people. And they brought myrrh. Myrrh was a spice. A spice that was used in embalming the dead. And they used that very spice on Jesus' body. When they came to take him to Joseph's tomb, they brought spices, as the manner of the Jews was to bury. One of those spices was myrrh. The Bible is a wonderful book. Because in every place, there's a pointer to the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ came, not just to live a good life. Not just to set an example for you and, and, and for me. But to die for us. To suffer for us. That's what, if you want to call it, Christmas is all about. It's about one who came to this earth. In order to be able to die for our sins. Because purely as God, he couldn't die. God cannot die. So God had to take into union with himself our manhood, our humanity, so that as a man he would die for men. And he did. He suffered and bled and died on the cross. Yielded himself to suffering. That's the position that Paul's referring to here. Even the death of the cross. There's so much in that. Even the death of the cross. Even something as horrible as that. And some of the depictions of a crucifixion some of the descriptions of a crucifixion are so horrible you can hardly stand to listen to it if you were there you would have to turn your head away you would not be able to watch it but he yielded himself to the hands of wicked men to be mocked and scorned and beaten and nailed impaled to a tree And he did it all for our redemption. 
As we see here in Philippians 2 verse 8, there are really two elements in the vicarious work of Christ. I remember studying this in the theology class of Mr. Beggs. I remember it very well, the active and passive obedience of Christ. And I remember him making the point that in Philippians 2 it says he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And making the point that the obedience unto death is the life of Christ. That's his active obedience, if you like. What he did during his life. And what he did, his obedience in life was vital in our redemption. Romans chapter 5 makes that clear. If I read verses 18 and 19, this is what Paul is really referring to. The act of obedience of Christ, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, there's Adam's sin, many were made or constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made or constituted righteous. By the obedience of one, it's by the righteous life of Christ that we have this righteousness that is imputed to us. The righteousness that he earned in his holy life. That's what it means. He became obedient unto death. There is the act of obedience of Christ. But then he suffered the penalty of the broken law on the cross. And we often refer to that, Mr. Beggs did, to being the passive obedience of Christ. Yet he made this point. That when Christ was passive on the cross, he was never so active. Because that was not a mere act of passive subjection to the suffering. He was actively obtaining redemption for us. So that the righteousness that he earned in his holy life, it is imputed, it's laid to the account, it's put to the credit of believers. He suffered the penalty of the broken law on the cross, dying for our sins, and wrought out an eternal redemption for us by dying the death of a slave. Even as a man, taking the form of a servant, coming to do the Father's will, he did that will. And then he died upon the cross. What a depth there is in those words, even the death of the cross. And so we remember today, all that Jesus has done in the incarnation. It was for me. Yes, all for me. Oh, love of God so great, so free. Oh, wondrous love, I'll shout and sing. He died for me, my Lord and King. When Mary brought the baby to Simeon, for him to put his blessing upon the child when he was so many days old. There's something that the scripture speaks of in, refer, in referring to that. And it's very, very significant. When they brought the child to Simeon, it says that Simeon took him up in his arms, he blessed the Lord and he gave this 
doxology as it were. Lord, now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Think about that. So that little babe in arms says, Lord, I've seen thy salvation. Because Christ is our salvation. But thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Mary felt that sword piercing through her soul when she stood by the cross. That little one that she brought into the world and nursed in her arms and brought up in Nazareth, now impaled upon a tree as she stood there with the other women and looked upon him. She knew, she realized, this is our Savior, this is my Savior. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Saviour. That's what she said prior to his birth. And when he was born, and when he lived, and when he died, he did so that he might be her Saviour and the Saviour of all who believe. Thank God for the Gospel of Christ. That's what we rejoice in today. It's not just the story of the Nativity, it's the Gospel story. It's the fact that he came that we might be redeemed. And I trust that each of us knows Christ as our Saviour and Lord today. And if there's anyone watching or listening to this message and you don't know the Saviour, it's certainly our prayer that this might be a very significant Christmas day for you when you come and put your trust in Him, the One who made Himself of no reputation, who went to the cross, suffered the death of the cross, that you and that I might be redeemed.